This episode is brought to you by Allstate. Allstate wants to remind fans that mayhem is everywhere, like at your pregame barbecue. While you prep your meats, that grease trap you forgot to empty is prepping to smoke your porch, garage, and the car inside. And without the right home and auto insurance coverage, the cost to repair this could eat up your savings. So bundle home and auto with Allstate to save and get protected from mayhem like this. Bundled savings vary and are not available in every state. Coverage is subject to policy terms and conditions. We got another day of NBA action. And with FanDuel, every night is a watch party. So it's time for your FanDuel crew to make their bets. So, what's the move tonight, gang? You know that new customers who bet $5 get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Woohoo! We're heating up, fam. Bet all the stars with all your friends and make every moment more only on FanDuel. New customers bet $5, get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Make every moment more with FanDuel. It goes down in the field. It goes down in the field. 21 plus and present in Virginia. First online real money wager only. $10 first deposit required. Bonus issued is non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire seven days after receipt. See full terms at FanDuel.com slash sportsbook. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Welcome back to the Habitat Podcast, the podcast for learning to become better habitat managers. I'm your host, Jared Van Hees. Thank you guys for joining me once again today. We have a special episode in store, but first I want to thank our listeners. Thank you guys so much for the great reviews you've been leaving on iTunes, the comments on Facebook, the sharing of our episode posts, everything, guys. Thank you so much. Really helping us grow, and it means a lot. Um, today we have Phil Lincoln on the line. He is out of Washington, way out west. So Phil owns property in Indiana, lived in Alaska, and now Washington, and made that commute to manage and hunt his property. We're going to go into basically how to pick a property if you're looking to buy. I know we've covered that a little bit before, but we want to hear Phil's ideas on what he was looking for being so far away from his property. Second, setting up a property. Phil had four or five different consultants walk his land with him prior to doing much of his habitat work. Don Higgins, Jeff Sturgis, Jim Ward, and even Jim Browker did a digital consult, I believe. So Phil has lots to share that he can summarize after having each of these experts out on what his property requires as the best hunting setup. And lastly, we're going to cover many do's and don'ts of setting up and managing a property. Phil's been doing this for a while, so he has multiple things that he recommends you do or you can try that's worked for him and multiple things that haven't worked for him that have been mistakes that we want to cover. So stay tuned, guys. Exciting episode from Phil Lincoln out of Washington. Next, I'd like to thank our sponsors for the show. You know, they help us get through this and, and support us as we try to grow, and it really means a lot to have 
friends, honestly, that are that are you know tied in with the show and helping. First, we got a brand new sponsor. I don't know if you guys have seen it on Facebook. Gabe Paselli from Dip That Hydrographics. So a hydrographic is a film that you can dip certain items in. A lot of people do guns, bow risers, um, coffee mugs like Yeti mugs, things like that. You can dip, and it comes out with any pattern you want, skull pattern, camouflage, zebra stripe. You can, it's a great way to customize things. People will dip certain parts of their pickup truck interiors. Uh, Brian on the podcast, he's doing a muzzle loader right off the bat. That's pretty cool. Uh, I think he's doing the Badlands camo. That should be a pretty sick muzzle loader when he's done. Guys, check out Gabe. He's on Facebook. Dip that hydrographics. Give him a call. You do get a 10% discount if you mention the Habitat podcast. So I always like to share the benefits that we receive with our listeners. So that is awesome there. Thanks, Gabe, for, for joining the show. Next, we have Nick Percy, Killer Food Plots. Nick will be at the Lansing Expo Center, Lansing, Michigan, this weekend for the Field and Stream Deer and Turkey Show. Great time to catch Nick. He's doing a few seminars. He's going to be talking about new products in his booth. He's got a giant booth. You can't miss him. If you're in the area, try to stop by and, and talk to him. See what he would recommend for, for your property, for food plots, screens, etc. Uh, the guy is super knowledgeable. I can't say that enough. He helps me anytime I have a question. So be sure to check in with Nick. He's doing a lot of property consults right now here in the Michigan area as well, walking your property with you, guiding you into uh, certain ideas or, or habitat changes. And he's been doing that almost every day over the last couple of weeks. So he's available for that as well. And lastly, guys, we have a new partnership with Michigan Whitetail Pursuit. I'm actually on that team as part of the filming team. But Michigan Whitetail Pursuit is a group of guys that pursue nothing but Michigan Whitetails on this show. So it's pretty relatable for anybody who hunts high-pressure situations like Michigan, PA, New York, Indiana, etc. So these are a team of hunters. We're in our 10th season of sharing the videos online. There's a DVD available as well, but check them out on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, they're going to help with the Habitat podcast as well. I'm going to help them. We're going to try to teach everybody who's a follower of Michigan Whitetail Pursuit to become a better Habitat manager as well. So, guys, check them out, Michigan Whitetail Pursuit on Facebook and a new partner of the Habitat podcast. Guys, that is enough of me rambling. I had to get through that stuff, but I am excited. We're going to talk to Phil Lincoln about property management right now. Welcome back, everybody. We have Phil Lincoln on the line. How you doing, Phil? Hey, I'm doing great. It's uh, it's great to talk to you guys. Well, thank you for coming on. And we also have our famous co-host, Brian Hallbly. You there, Brian? <laughs> I'm here, buddy. How's it going? There he is. Good, man. Thanks for joining us again, Brian and Phil. We are uh, we've been talking about this podcast all day. I'm excited. I want to hear about you, Phil. Let's you know, let's get this thing rolling how we always do. Who are you? Where are you from? Tell us a story. Okay. So uh, the Reader's Digest version is I grew <laughs> up in uh, the mountains in Northern California hunting uh, hunting blacktailed deer, and I did do a little bit of uh, elk and mule deer hunting in other states like uh, Oregon and Idaho, but primarily 
small game and and uh, Columbia Blacktail didn't really even hardly know a whitetail existed until uh, years and years later. Um, didn't know what I wanted to do after high school. Joined the Air Force. Ended up in Anchorage. Um, about a year later, I my wife, who's from Indiana, Jennifer, was uh, in Alaska on an internship between her junior and senior year of college. We spent the summer together. She uh, apparently went back to school in love and. Uh, we got married about a year later, and uh, she moved to Alaska, and uh, we lived in Alaska until just a little over a year ago, um, and now we're in uh, eastern Washington. So, uh, yeah, a lot of a lot of fond memories in in Alaska. Lots of lots of hunting. Uh, wow. Um, all kinds of crazy adventures. Uh, um, even guided for about the last. Uh, 12 years, um, pretty much did that as a kind of an excuse to, to spend more time in the woods than I could afford the, the time off or the, uh, you know, justify doing it. So, um, yeah, so I started doing a little bit of guiding and, uh, turns out it's just as fun to go out with, uh, complete strangers and, uh, you know, chase sheep or brown bears or moose around and oh, yeah. get paid for it and, Yeah. So it was uh, turned out to be a good compromise, and and since we've been here in Washington, I've actually uh, I went back uh, the last two Septembers and uh, guided moose and brown bear hunters, and then uh, came back came back here to Lower Forty Eight. So, oh, very cool! So you've been a yeah a West Coast boy your whole life, huh? Pretty much, yep, pretty okay. much. And always always dreamed of always dreamed of going to Alaska. I told my recruiter, I said. I'd like to go to Alaska. I think I think I'd like to chase some of the critters up there. And he said, "Well, where else do you want to go overseas?" I said, "I don't want to go anywhere else overseas." They said, "You better not tell me you want to go to Alaska, or they'll end up sending you to, you know, to Korea or Germany or who knows where." And so I said, "All right, well, <laughs> put down for eight choices on the West Coast, different bases where I could, you know, chase elk and mule deer and the things that I'd grown up done. What do they do? They send me to Alaska." Wow. <laughs> and and so, what service were you in, Phil? I was in the Air Force. Oh, well, I was an I aircraft mechanic. Want to thank you for your service. So. No, you bet. And uh, you know, living in Alaska, how long did you say you were up there? So we were up there about what is that? Twenty twenty six years. Oh wow. Twenty twenty seven years. Yeah, from basically from nineteen until you know a little over a year ago. I'm uh, I uh, just turned forty nine. So yeah, our daughters were uh, daughters were born and raised up there and. Uh, you know, we we have identical twin daughters that are 20 now, and they're both uh, um, in their second year of college at Boise State. And once they graduated, we we've been talking about moving away from Alaska for 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 a couple of years. And once the girls graduated and decided on school in the lower 48, that kind of that kind of got us that much more motivated to you know come south and kind of follow yeah. them. And and so uh, Jennifer's work is. Uh, is uh, is basically based out of Spokane, so for her it was just a lateral move, and you know the girls are you know a day's drive away, and yeah, it's worked out great. So you have twin girls. I have twin girls, and once we knew that uh, those were the only two kids we were going to have, I thought, well, if I'm going to, uh, if I'm only, if I'm not ever going to have a boy, I guess I'm going to have to introduce these girls to. Uh, outdoors and hunting and, and if it sticks with either one of them then 
know, then then that's that's great. And if not, no big deal. We tried, and they're uh, they're both currently uh, on a sporting clays team at uh, Boise State because uh, they've they started shooting clays when they were 11, and they've been shooting them ever since. And now you couldn't stop them if you tried. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> And you're yeah, and you're, yeah. and you're 49, so you made it through their childhood of, of twin girls. So okay, so hopefully <laughs> yep. that's good news for me, and and I can make it through mine. Okay, they're they're four. Hey, I was so. I was I was a stay-at-home dad with twins for eight years. So oh my goodness, if you, friend! If you ever if you ever have issues, you let me know, and I'll I'll coach you through them. Because there's <laughs> there's no, there's there's nothing that can't be fixed. <laughs> oh man, I don't know how you did it, and I give my wife credit all the time for uh, for raising the, the girls while I'm at work right now. And I mean, yeah, it's just they're awesome, but it's a lot. They're, it's a lot, so it's pretty cool that you were a single right. dad and got to spend that much time with them. That's awesome. Right, and let me let me add one more thing because it's kind of relevant to what happened to me. Um, my wife got selected for a program, and and she went to um, she got accepted to Johns Hopkins to uh, get her graduate degree, and so we were misplaced Alaskans um, in the state of Maryland for two years while Jennifer uh, Jennifer got her uh, PhD at Hopkins. And um, while we were there, my in-laws were in Indiana. They were only a long day's drive away. So, you know, Jennifer's busy with school, and I was busy with the kids. And so, you know, we'd jump in the car and go to Indiana for long weekends. Well, my, my father-in-law's a ex-school teacher, knew everybody in the area. And, and um, he's like, you know, if you want to come out here and hunt deer, we can, you know, there's, there's options. And uh, so I started hunting deer, and you know, one thing led to another, and I got the the whitetail bug that that everybody else seems to have, and it just got stronger and stronger. And you know, the the challenge of shooting a mature whitetail, you know, pretty quick to me, it was like, okay, this is the this is the ultimate this is the ultimate animal, and uh, so it just continued to just continued to grow, and then, of course, we were back to Alaska. Um, then I started going to Indiana every year, and then it was like, okay, let's start looking for a place of our own. And and fast forward, we've we've owned a piece of property that's, uh, oh, it's 76, 77 acres. And it's actually just a stone's throw from one of the properties that I used to hunt um, when I started out. So it's kind of cool that it's kind of made a big circle. And now, um, Jennifer refers to it as deer camp, um, <laughs> but now it's pretty much, pretty much strictly, you know, every everything that goes into the farm goes in with deer in mind. Um, you know, the turkeys and the rabbits and bob white quail, which haven't been there, um, haven't been seen in the area in years and years and years, kind of made the scene. And so there's, you know, there's other things that come with it, which is great, but. Uh, Everything I've done has been pretty specific for whitetails. Okay, well, nice segue into the Indiana property, Phil. I, uh, yeah. I know Stephen Ranillo would be proud of that segue. Nice job. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, Chris, Chris Pope last week had a pretty good one, but, you know, yours was just as good. So. Right, oh, good. Moving on. So now, <laughs> at the end of, uh, I think you said when we talked earlier, 2011, 2012 is when you got that. 76 mm-hmm. acres in, in Indiana. Now, mm-hmm. you're still living in Washington, and mm-hmm. are your in-laws still in Indiana? 
They are. My in-laws okay. are about 25 minutes away. Oh, that's yeah. nice. Okay, great. Um, and it's perfect because they love the place. They mow the lawn. They take care of it. They make sure things are cool. But neither one of them likes to hunt. Okay. <laughs> yeah, in fact, perfect. my mother-in-law gives me a hard time by saying that uh, right before season, you know, she gets, knows I get all amped up as the season's getting close, and you know, you don't eat, you don't even want a coyote running through your your place when you're getting ready to get there and hunt. And she'll she'll uh, she'll text me or say, "Hey, I took a walk around the property and we're <laughs> here today," and you know, she can see my eyes rolling on on the other end of the line. You know, <laughs> uh, that's great. Oh, that's awesome. So, ongoing joke with them. You no, know, that I would I would do the same thing if I were her. That's hilarious. Yep. Now, when you were in Washington, you bought the property when you were in Washington. Is that correct? You were already back. Down no, there? we were. No, we were still in Alaska. Okay. We just, we just moved to Washington um, August of uh, year before last. So we've been we've been here a little over a year. And how long have you owned your property in Indiana? Uh, we bought it. We bought it right around the first of the year, the, the 11, 12, first of the year. Oh, yeah, so right, technically, right, right. I think we bought it in 20, 2012, yeah. Okay. So the first, yeah, the first first several years was managing it from Alaska. And, uh, wow. Yeah, that was tough. It's, um, you know, it's an all-day trip by plane. You get there, you're exhausted. And, you know, it's so funny because, um, you know, I travel all the way there to – you know, to deer hunt or to come and do habitat work or visit relatives, or whatever. And, you know, living in Alaska, you know, the other, you know, 300 and, you know, 340 days of the year, 350 days of the year, all I can think about is whitetails and being at the property. Yet when I get down, yet when I get down to Indiana and I'm at the property, all my buddies there, they're dreaming of being in Alaska. <laughs> so it's that, right? you know, the grass is always greener syndrome. You know, I'm in Alaska wishing I could be in Indiana, and everybody in Indiana is wishing they could hunt Alaska. So, And I'll never complain about my 90-mile drive ever again. <laughs> <laughs> well, and right now, you know, right now to jump in the car is two and a half, two and a half days drive as it is. So Alaska's, <laughs> wow. only, right. Alaska's only half away, yeah. So, but it's all good. It's worked out great, and and I've had I've had a tremendous amount of help. And that's you know, like anything else in life, it, it, it's make or break in a lot of lot of lot of situations. Oh, great. great neighbors, great neighbors. Now that great neighbors are definitely important. I have uh, I'm lucky to have some great neighbors as well, and that means a lot on a on a smaller mm-hmm. property, especially. Um, one of the themes of today, if you will, I wanted to cover was new property considerations. So when you were in Alaska, what were the things going through your mind when you were searching for a property to buy? And what should our listeners, you know, keep in mind as they do the same thing if they're out looking to maybe upgrade their property or buy their first farm or whatever that may be? Sure, sure. Well, first of all, for me, it was kind of a unique situation because... I pretty much knew I wanted to be in a pretty small area. So then it was really not so much, you know, searching for the right state or even the right county. It was pretty much finding a property, pretty, you know, and, and then saying, okay, you know, five years from now, ten years from now, am I going to be happy with this property because I, you know, I bought the first thing that, that uh, came available. Um, 
but but yeah, I mean that's a that's a huge consideration, and uh, you know part of it part of it boils down to what are your goals? You know, are you just looking for another property? If you're like me from Indiana, which is a one buck state, I mean, there's been years when I got to the property and you know I had three weeks planned to be there and shot a deer, shot my buck on like the third day, and it's like. Well, crap! What am I going to do for the other eighteen or nineteen days? I'm down here, you know. You don't want to run all the deer off onto the neighbor's property while everybody's still hunting. That's true. Get but, them killed. Uh, yeah. But right. um, but yeah. So so um, you know what? What are your goals if you're just looking for? You know, are, are you looking for trophies? Are you just looking for another location to hunt? Um, are you looking for something that you can? you know, work on after work and on the weekends that's, you know, within a reasonable driving distance or, you know, is it going to be like two states away where, you know, you don't go after work and you probably don't go most weekends. Um, so, so, you know, that, that comes into the picture. And then, of course, uh, you know, you, you can't have unreal expectations. Um, as you guys know, well know, you know, Michigan, you know, statistically, Michigan, Pennsylvania, New York, states like that, you know, don't have a lot of 200-inch deer running around. And so if your goal is to, you know, to hunt, you know, big mature deer with big racks, well, then you probably shouldn't be looking at those states. Maybe you should be looking at, you know, Iowa or Kansas or Missouri or, or whatever. And, you know, something that's kind of interesting is if you take if you take a map that has all of the Boone and Crockett records – by county, um, and, it, and it's got it's got colors shaded for what states have the you know what states have the most, and you overlap that map with a map of all the Midwest states and the higher percentage of soybeans. They're almost an exact mirror of each other. Really? Yep, that's crazy. And how did you do that? How, how did you go about over overlaying those maps together? Well, I mean, it's you know that's it's it's a little it's it's not that technical, but but um, you know the information the information's available. It's so out basically, there. Yeah. If, if, yeah, it's out there. If you take those, a friend of mine from uh, Tennessee, um, who I got to be friends with because uh, I guided him bear hunting in Alaska. He's a he's a real history buff and um, living in uh, Tennessee, you know, in property and. Uh, Southern Illinois, he was he was telling me that and and showed and explained it to me and it's I mean there's no there's no question that states that grow lots of soybeans you know that's a great food source and you're going to get bigger bucks period and it's just for sure it's it's really that simple. Um, oh, let's see what else. Um, you know, obviously a piece of property that's perfectly flat. You know, you're buying. You know, if you're buying an acre of land, you're getting an acre of land. But if you're buying a, you know, an acre of land that's got, you know, drainages, creeks, haulers, you know, differences in elevation, then you're actually buying more square footage, and that typically typically hunts better as well. Um, it's kind of one of those that you don't really think about, but but if you actually figure out, you know, everything. When they sell property, it's all sold by, you know, basically corner to corner with GPS, uh, you know, markers. But the amount of contour that's in that property isn't counted. So, so that makes you know that makes a big difference. Um, 
let's see, what else was I thinking? Uh, now, when when you were going through this, did you have anybody helping you, some sort of professional, or were you just scouring, you know, land watch? And, and what was your percentage of cover to field if you had one? You know, I didn't really have one because at that point I'd done enough research to know, you know, that if it was heavily wooded, it could probably be heavily logged. If it was open or had some, you know, commercial ag on it, you know, there was probably some, you know, some rental money to be made off of it. Um, in the end, the property that I bought, I basically just, you know, I let a lot of local friends and, and, and family know that we were looking. And we did find, I did find one place that was offered for sale before it went open to the, to the public. And I, and I looked it over real hard and I bought a friend in that was a timber buyer and said, you know, what kind of money can we make if we log it right away? And, you know, it was kind of taking that into the, to the initial investment, taking that into the equation. And I just, you know, there wasn't really a good place to put a house one day if we decided to move there. That was kind of the big, the big thing. Well, a friend of mine ended up buying it after I said I wasn't interested. He did a bunch of habitat stuff to it, and then ended up selling it a few years later because he just couldn't, he just couldn't make it work. So that was something that, you know, I was being really, really picky what I wanted, I guess, and I didn't get it for a couple of different reasons. And it turns out that even though the property was bordering a property that was, oh, I think 150 or maybe even 200 acres, and the guy didn't allow anybody to hunt, and there were always giants running around, I thought, oh shoot, you know, they'll be running across the property line you know, yearly and, you know, shoot a big buck every year. And, well, it didn't work out that way for my friends. So so that's that's a situation where, you know, having kind of some hard and fast rules of what I was looking for actually ended up working out for me. Um, but, you know, there's also a lot of luck involved in the right one popping up and, you know, not having to compete, compete with the world uh, getting it as well, you know. Well, I, th- right. I think that's a that's a good point because, I mean, when I was looking, I looked for like a year and a half, and you get so desperate, if you will, just, just wanting to find something, the best thing, the you know, mm-hmm. most important. And you, you look at all these properties, and I think you should be picky. I think that was a smart move, obviously, to pay it off. Um, right. You know, wait till you can have the right access to, to your property. Mm-hmm. Um you know, if right. it's, or, or the contour, or the cover, or whatever it may be, I think uh, you should be picky. It's not like you're just buying, you know, a certain type of beer for the weekend. I mean, it's kind of an investment, you know, so. Right. I think and what's good crazy move. is, yeah, and what's crazy is, the friend of mine that ended up buying it is actually my neighbor um, and was the caretaker for the property that I bought. So I said, no. Nope, it's just not going to work. I can't make it work. He's like, well, do you mind if I try and make a deal? I said, no problem. He did it. Well, then the property, his basically, his 77-acre backyard literally came available. Well, he was tied into this other one. You know, he'd managed this property, had permission to hunt it for years, and then wasn't in a situation to get it. So when the guy who owned it said, you know, hey, are you interested in this? He's like, I would love to. I can't afford it, but I think I know somebody who does. So he basically said, "Well, if I can't own it, at least I, at least I can control who my neighbor who my neighbors." Are. I got a text one day, and it just said, "It's for sale," and I knew exactly what he meant. 
And so then it was like, this is it. This is the property. I'd hunted it with him once before. Um, it was in a great location. It had everything. I was just, I was, then, then you, then you start, then I started going through all of this fear of, you know, now are we going to lose it or is it not going to be possible or is it going to be more than we can afford or whatever, you know? So then you start, then you start panicking, you know? And so, uh, my wife had to travel for work shortly thereafter and, uh, she went there, and the, the neighbor that told me about it took her driving around the four-wheeler. My wife fell in love with it. And, and um, you know, if you can't, if you can't convince your, your spouse that this is the right decision, then, we, I mean, we all know that life is full of compromises. And uh, fortunately, Jennifer's been, uh, you know, super supportive from the very beginning. You know, she loves the farm. It's our, the two of us, is, it's our favorite place to be. It's, you know, it's quiet. It's you know, it, it's just that's our it's our it's our sanctuary, and, and her being on board with it from the very beginning has, has made it super easy as well. You know, we start thinking about you know buying trees and you know buying expensive you know switchgrass or or you know doing you know doing different habitat stuff. It all costs money. You know, do we want a tractor? Do we want to wait? You know, those things are all expensive, and and uh, you know having having your partner support is, is, uh, is a huge deal for sure. Awesome. Now, yeah. tell us more about the property itself. Um, before we get into some of the steps you're taking towards making it, you know, better in terms of habitat, what's the property like? Try to draw a picture in our mind, if you don't mind. No yeah. So it's basically, it's basically two forty acre squares. It's not quite, it's a it's an eighty it's an eighty two acre rectangle and the friend that I was telling you about actually owns five acres on one side of it so I basically have a big C shape around him and um, half of it if you draw if you draw a line from north to south halfway across the property from north to south the the property's basically a half mile long by a quarter quarter mile wide and if you draw if you draw a line from the north side of the property straight down through the center to the south property line, there's basically two two elevations. One's kind of a bottom, and the other's, uh, um, I don't know, elevation-wise what it technically is, but, you know, 75 or 100 feet taller. Okay, wow. And then, it's, and then it flattens off. And that's where my, uh, my commercial ag was. It's now CRP, but... Uh, so, so the property, you know, half of it is elevated from the other half of it, and um, you know, just just the just the two elevations makes a hard line. You know, we talk about you know hard edges, deer like to run edges, and just the two property differences kind of makes a kind of makes a makes an edge that deer seem to naturally travel. Um, so in the on the upper side of it, in the very the very northwest corner and the very southwest corner, were two ag fields that were commercially uh, farmed. Um, the, a local farmer did both of them for a crop share, and uh, they were about 20 acres combined. The south field's just a little bit bigger. And um, let's see, three three years ago, three years ago, I got the north field. I got eight acres of the north field into a CRP program um, designated for the grasshopper sparrow and 
there were a couple other birds involved, but basically I looked at the options. So to put in a pollinator program or um, this one for the for these birds, well, the pollinator one wasn't going to have anything growing in it much higher than you know the knee high. It was going to be lots of different forbs and stuff to support the the, uh, the honeybees. But what we ended up going with is all grasses that are you know mostly over my head um, when it's in and it's full. So. So I was able to, you know, put it into a 15-year contract. Um, so it's making about what it was making as a crop field, but yet it's deer habitat um, 24-7, awesome. 365 versus one-year corn, one-year beans. And, you know, of course, a lot of the year sitting around with, you know, Absolutely. everybody who drives by looking into your property. Right, <laughs> right, right. right. Now they drive by and go, holy cow, but there's a big buck laying in that grass. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's awesome. And, and how hard was it to get your land into that program? Was it a big deal? or? So, no, it wasn't It wasn't a big deal. Um, you know, um, yeah, I went to the, to the local uh, farm service, you know, talked to the natural resources guy, and, and uh, so the farm services side can tell you, you know, what's eligible, how many acres are available, you know, what it has to, what the requirements are to meet. Um, in, our, in our case, it was, you know, pretty typical. It needed to be commercially farmed, I think, three out of the last five years or yep. something like that. Yeah. And so, and because it had, um, then it was just, okay, was it, is it, you know, are the, are the acreage going to be available? So I actually got the north field in one year. And then I had leased the, the south field to a neighbor with, um, with uh, for like four years. So I couldn't do anything with it until he was done with it. And so it came out of contract with him the year after the north field. And uh, fortunately, uh, the way the the way the, the luck went, the acreage was available, and I was able to get the south field in the CRP. The second year, so they're a year apart, both on 15-year contracts. They both make um, the same amount per year, which I told other people what I'm getting paid for it, and it blows some people's minds that uh, that you can get that much for it. Because I've heard, you know, I've heard of people getting, you know, like thirty dollars an acre once a year, and you know, I've heard people get, you know, well over two hundred dollars once a year. So it, you know, it really boils down to your your soil quality. Okay. And and evidently ours was evidently ours was pretty good because it's a little over two hundred an acre a year. Um, good for you guys. That helps. That's yeah. Awesome. It, 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 it it made that decision it made that decision really easy. When I was talking to my farmer about about pulling it out, um, he was like, "He's a deer hunter too." He's like, "Well, you're a fool not to," because <laughs> you know right now you know right now that's about what you're making if you average a bean in a corn year, and of course prices. You know, prices have been down for for a number of years, and who knows what's going to happen next year. And uh, you know, he said, "Yeah, he said that's that's what you need to do. That's just that's just smart money." So we did that, and that's been great. I mean, the deer the deer dove into it instantly, and uh, um, it's been a little bit of an education. They they you know rather than just going and buying my favorite you know mix of you know switchgrass, cave and rock, or you know whatever mix or you know, Don Higgins bedding in a bag or whatever. You, they, uh, your natural resources guy says, okay, now that 
now that the dollars are allocated for you, then they build the recipe and tell you what you need to plant there and at what rates and so on and so forth. So there's, you know, there's big blue stem and little blue stem. There's some forbs. There's some uh, different kinds of warm season grasses. It's, you know, it's a mix of uh, several different things. But, uh, yeah, so it, it, yeah, it worked out great. And, and uh, on the south field, I actually pulled some acreage out um, for food plots before I before I put it in the program, so I was able to uh, after doing the after doing the north field and not being kind of like ah oh, crap I wish I had that to do again I would I would have changed some stuff so on the second field I was able to kind of plan a little bit better I guess for food plots and uh, so now on the eighty acres I basically have a big a big, I guess you'd call it, it almost looks like a like a track that goes all the way, that connects all the way around the property. So a half mile south, you know, from the, from the north side of the property all the way to one end of the property, across it, back all the way up, and then it loops back around. It's a, it's a big giant, it's just a big giant meandering loop of food. Nice. And so then I've got, you know, I've got stand locations here and there based on water and food and grass and, you know, different uh, different shrubs and, yeah, I mean, it's really, it's really shaping up to, uh, you know, to be a, be a pretty cool place. It's, uh, it's thick, um, but anyway, you get sidetracked there and run down. I got a follow-up for you, Phil. Sure, yeah, it's, oh, absolutely. Yeah, I was just curious, how involved was that process from going from commercially farm to CRP. And the reason I asked that, I have a, uh, or I had an agreement with a farmer and it was kind of like a handshake deal. So I don't really have any documentation that it was professionally or commercially farmed, but it was. And how, how much detail they go into Would I have to uh, prove that to them in a, with paperwork or how does that work? To be honest with you, what you're probably going to run into is your Farm service, farm service agency person. That it's it's probably going to be, it's probably going to be up to them, um, because when when you know when 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 land is commercially farmed, you know the farmers you know they submit paperwork yearly in the spring what they planted how much what the yields are I mean all that stuff is you know all that stuff turned in for taxes and um. um when you do a handshake deal like that, if, if that person's not contributing to that system, I, it, I don't think it's impossible to get it in, but you do have to prove that it's been, that that's what has been used. And so I think in that situation, that would just be a, an individual farm service agency person. I mean, if you catch them on a bad day, they'll probably just quote you something right out of the book and say, no, you can't do it because we don't have any documentation. You catch them on a good day and they may say, well, let me talk farmed it and let's you know, let's find out what they put in it and you know. I don't really know for fact what they're what they would tell you, but I, I certainly wouldn't I wouldn't give up. I would try. Um, okay. Does that answer your question? It's kind of a Yeah, it it does. Uh, I ran into the same trouble with the tax uh, uh, department also for the county, which I expected because, you know, they, they don't want to give you a break on anything without having it proved to the nth degree. So 
I was just curious if if I'd run into that with the FSA or the USDA also. Right, right. Yeah, that's yeah. I couldn't I couldn't tell you. You know, somebody like your 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 uh, one of your previous guests, Chad Faithburn, he could probably he's probably dealt with it enough. He would probably know, but certainly your your local FSA person would um, could tell you. And just uh, take a cup of coffee and hope to get some other good things. That's probably going to directly relate to how much help you get. Right. Now, now do all the programs have to have previous farm, uh, commercial farm implications, or is there other programs that it doesn't really matter? I would be lying if I gave you an answer on that, Brian. I honestly don't know. I do know that there's okay. a lot of different programs. I know that there's, you know, there's some there's some erosion programs. There's some, you know, programs for like edge feathering where they'll give you money to go in there and, you know, get the trees away from the field so that the so that the the field gets more sunlight. They'll give you money to plant strips around your field so that the, you know, that the fertilizers and the Pesticides and whatever's being used in there are less likely to drain into, you know, any creeks and, you know, make their way into the, you know, to the water system. So, there's a, and every state's a little bit different as far as their requirements and, um, yeah, yeah, so it's, it's, it's worth, it's worth pursuing. I mean, if you, if you understand what the, if you understand what the limitations are, um, you know, I've had guys tell me that uh, uh, I knew a guy that put a, um, a section of woods into some sort of like classified forest or registered forest or something like that. And then when he learned about hinge cutting and the different things that he could do, you know, manipulating, open up the canopy, blah, blah, blah. He literally told me, he's like, I'm thinking about just selling my property and starting over because, you know, he basically couldn't. You know, he basically couldn't do anything with it that he wanted to because he was tied into this contract. And it kind of goes back to what Jim Brocker was saying on your last program about, you know, if you're going to manage it for deer and 100% for deer, other things are going to suffer. I mean, there's there's a lot of there's a lot of compromises you can make, but when when I bought my place, I, it was it was kind of a, a lucky timing thing. Um, Jim Ward happened to be in the area, and I talked him into coming by the property and spending a day with me there, looking the property over, kind of getting me started. What direction should I go? You know, I didn't know him from Adam, but he came highly recommended. And this is, you know, this was a number of years ago, and he's just, you know, gotten more and more popular since, harder to, you know, harder to get. But uh, after walking the property with him and spending some time, and we built some buck beds, and he's kind of showing me techniques and stuff like that. I realized right away that, you know, everything, everything he kept telling me, I kept thinking, well, crap, if we, if we log it, we're going to ruin all that. And so what I realized, what I realized by the end of the day was the first thing I needed to do the property is I needed to log it. I needed to log it. I needed to log it heavy and I needed to log it as soon as possible because every, every day I waited on logging was just one more day before I could, you know, do, do any other habitat stuff. And so this is one of those, you know, to somebody who's thinking about buying a property, um, you know, if you can walk onto a property and it meets all your requirements and it's got loggable timber right off the way, right out, right off the bat, then, you know, there's your, 
you know, if you have a successful logging, there's your there's your down payment right off the you know right off the get go. And um, absolutely. And then the other thing is, is a lot of these a lot of these companies. Um, my neighbor happens to be a buyer for a big mill, and he says typically what happens: we come in, we scale the lumber, we tell you, you know, we'll give you X amount for it. They basically take all the risk. They come in, they have they have up to two years to log it, and they come and do it when the timing's good for them. And you're just that you you just you're just waiting. So what my friend did was bumped me to the top list, got it logged literally like three months later. Um, got us, you know, got us a good price for the timber, and um, almost right out of the gate, owning the property, you know, all of a sudden, you know, when the when the the chainsaws and the skidders left, it was like, holy cow, what have we done? You know, my my beautiful my beautiful park woods aren't park woods anymore. But yeah. <laughs> you know, things that I've learned, you know, from walking the woods with Jim and and from other people and reading and whatever, all of a sudden. You know, those things started popping out. Okay, this is going to be good. You know, this is this is going to regenerate. And and uh, and what I told what I told the timber buyer is, I said, take everything out that's worth something. I'm not concerned about you know only taking the big stuff and then coming back and logging again in ten years or whatever. Um, basically, if it's if it's worth something now, let's do it because you know I might not do a full scale log on it again. And uh, they took five, I think about 530 trees off of 70, you know, 76 acres, which sounds like a lot, but there's still a lot of closed canopy after they're sure. done. But uh, yeah, it's it's a lot of select cutting over a big area, right? But it did put a big chunk of change in our pocket, and really, sure. I mean, and it, and it started down the road towards. Uh, you know, saplings and, and, you know, light to the floor. I mean, you've had enough guests telling you about the, the advantage of getting light to the floor and what it does. I mean, it's just amazing. Right. And you have to keep yeah. up with it because all those trees, you know, that you just, you know, you just created that big hole in the sky and all those trees around it, man, they just suck that, that hole right up. So you have to, it doesn't take but a couple of years and all those big holes and all those weeds and saplings that are growing get, get shaded out pretty darn quick. It's pretty amazing. Right. Yeah, so that's a good point that you brought up, and we talked to Dr. Jim about is uh, dedicating your whole property to deer. Because I started out with uh, about 10 acres of my property. I have 40 acres in northeast Ohio, and uh, about 10 acres of it on the south edge on the on, along the county road was being commercially farmed. And, you know, I, I had a, a decent deal on it, but that's that was a quarter of my property, 25% of my property that was unavailable for deer for most of the year. So I decided to go a different direction last year, and uh, I've already seen major improvements on that. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, there used to be the, the South Field, um, the, the neighbor that I um, leased it to for a few years, he did alfalfa. I thought, well, you know, I can still make a, a monthly cash rent and have alfalfa. I mean, that's great deer food. It's like a big giant. You know, it's a big giant uh, food plot that somebody else is maintaining and paying me to to do it. Well, it did. It wasn't as good of a food plot as I'd like. It's not the best. You know, it's not the best year-round cover. And and I and I've definitely learned, you know, with time that the cover and hiding deer and keeping deer happy 
is more important than uh, than lots of food plots and feeding them because basically you know if you've got if you've got lots of diversity and you got you know lots of uh, you know lots of sunlight coming to the floor all those forbs all that natural vegetation everywhere is the best food for them anyway and they're you know they're they're still going to hit the you know the neighbor's cornfields and the neighbor's soybeans and stuff like that but but you know your property is going to be their core and and that's that's way more important than uh, than putting in an extra food plot and and certainly trying to do it long distance sucks. I spent a lot of money on seed and then called my neighbor two weeks later and had him say, "Yeah, nothing's growing here yet." Oh no! <laughs> or you know, now it's a big mud hole because we got you know pouring rain you know two days after and you gotta so yeah and then you know and then you're not there to to replant or to watch it or whatever. So I learned real sure. quick that. You know, take the briar patches and the, you know, the vine honeysuckle and some of the things that are, you know, maybe most deer people look at and they think, oh, that's invasive or that's not good or whatever. But, you know, those things are a huge part of a deer's diet on a, on a daily basis. And, uh, you know, keeping, keeping invasives like vine honeysuckle in check is, is, is kind of almost like having a superfood around. I, right now it's, you know, cold as heck in, in Indiana and I'll bet you oh, all, yeah. the, all the deer within within a good within a good distance are on my property right now because I've got miles of green leaves on um, you know Japanese vine honeysuckle but sure they're, they're eating the heck out of it now, Phil you talked about having uh, Jim Ward come in was there anybody else you consulted with and what kind of steps have you taken to make the place better habitat so, yeah, so so Jim didn't really get to do a full, you know, he pointed some things out to me. We talked about, you know, potential and what he would do and whatnot. And, and then um, I met Don Higgins um, a little while later and worked out a deal with him to have him come by the property. And, and um, he did a, you know, he walked it and gave me his, uh, his opinion on it. And then... Um, and then, I don't know, I, I, a couple years later, I just, I guess I got a bee in my bonnet and I just wasn't convinced that, uh, it wasn't that I didn't trust what anybody said, because that's not the case at all, but what I thought, what it, what it felt like is like, let's see, I've got two people's opinion, there's probably a hundred other guys that have an opinion, it would sure be cool to have a couple more, just to have it. Oh, um, so... I actually got saved some. I saved some money, and I got uh, Jeff Sturgis. I caught Jeff Sturgis when he was making a big loop checking properties, and he came through the property, and he fit what he thought was a good idea um, that fit into my CRP. Since I was committed by then to the CRP, I hadn't put the south field in, but I put the north field in. So it's like, okay, here's how you adapt to what you've already done, and then this is how you adapt to what you're about to do and make it better <clears throat> and um you know every, every habitat guy is going to tell you you know whether it's jake illinger or 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 dr jim or don higgins or you know there's a ton of them out there jim ward they're all great guys they all have solid opinions they're probably all you know eric long they're probably all going to give you they're all going to give you a great plan or what they think is the best plan Every one of them is probably going to benefit you and help you with end goals. 
So, you know, one guy will tell you to, you know, make me tell you to hinge every other tree, and, and the next guy might say, don't hinge anything, you know, make this a sanctuary, plant this in the food plot, stay out of the sanctuary, put on this side of the food plot and be done with it. You know, so you're going to get you're going to get all kinds of opinions. And right. it was actually it was actually kind of cool to get Jeff Sturgis's take on it. Um, uh, Dr. Jim did a an aerial um, survey on my place. I sent him a copy of it, um, gave him a few bucks. He uh, I talked to him on the phone for a half hour, kind of gave him a little bit of history. He looked at. You know, he looked up like prevailing wind and things like that, and then and then he sent me a little. Uh, I don't know if he still does it, but at the time he offered it as a as a service. And uh, you know, he's like, I'd plant this here, I'd hinge cut this, I'd you know do a you know towards the tornado zone down this line. And um, you know, the bottom line is, I learned a little something from all of them. Right. I I've, I've got kind of a kind of a combination of all of them. I took the things that I liked or I thought worked for me out of each individual opinion and, uh, and you know, kind of made it work for me. No, that's, that's interesting you say that. And I don't think you're, you know, off the mark by, by doing so. I mean, you start cutting no. down trees and you start making new food plots for the dozer or putting your property into a 15-year contract. I mean, that's some serious stuff. And to have more right. opinions... Is not a bad thing at all. I think uh, right, and I mean, and I can tell you, and Don will admit it. I'm, you know, Don's Don's a good friend with me. I shared a campfire in Alaska. Took him on a moose hunt. He's a really um, nice guy. Yeah, he's a super nice guy. I really, super really guy. like him. And you know, he he is totally, and he'll tell you, he's totally against hinge cutting. Period. He doesn't think there should be one hinge cut tree in the woods anywhere. I know plenty of people His, totally against it. Yep. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Don's opinion is is if it's if it's, if it's a tree that's not worth anything more than laying on the ground, then either kill it, cut it down, and plant something in its place that is. So, and, you know, he's, he's not as convinced about the, you know, the side cover and, the, you know, the, that it becomes a, you know, becomes a giant buffet if it survives and grows leaves on it every year and the deer eat the leaves and the buds and stuff off of it. You know, he, on his property, and I've been on his property, on his property, you know, places that, that he wanted to do that kind of bedding, he just went and cut everything down and then just let it grow back. Okay. So then you get all, you know, you get all the saplings and the thick and the, you know, he put in some, you know, he planted some trees and did some other stuff as well for, for mast and, and nuts and things like that. But, but basically he didn't use what was there to create bedding. He just, he let bedding come in basically. I mean, either way you're, you're, you're getting that sunlight down, right? And, Exactly. I think that you having all these guys down there. I mean, my buddy Gabe, he's in Pennsylvania. I've been talking to him. He's had, I think, Jim Ward out, um, our friend Phil, who was on the podcast, out. He has somebody else out, too. I can't remember who. And he, he said the same thing. He's just like, I want to make sure that I have enough opinions to where I'm comfortable, to where I know what I'm doing moving forward. If I'm going to come in right. here with a plan, I have three plans, and now I know from these right. three or four guys that, okay, right. you know, I'm, I'm good to go. And I, you know, and I basically learned that, you know, I've got buddies that pay big money on leases and they have no control over the property. They, right. you know, they may hunt it, but other guys oh, yeah. they may or may not know or may or may not know well. And, um, 
you know, I kind of looked at it as, as, well, I'm spending a little bit of money over a long period of time on these different guys for an opinion, but I'm not, I always have a place that's mine to hunt. I'm the only one that hunts it. I've got good neighbors that are relatively selective and, you know, a couple neighbors that are more than happy to help at this, at this point with food plots and other things. So it's like, I felt like I could spend a little bit of money. It was more, for me, it was more of a curiosity. I didn't think that, I didn't think that Jim didn't have the answers or that Dr. Jim's layout wasn't, wasn't correct or that Don was on the wrong track at all. It was just like, wow, you know, I can get the opinion of somebody that, you know, really knows what they're talking about. And I found each 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 and every time I I, I dealt with somebody, I was just more and more fascinated. And and and, and even so, because the plans were so different, right? Mm-hmm. Accomplishing the same thing, but so different. You pretty much just explained my fascination with this podcast. it's it's so crazy i mean you know i yeah i've hunted and and been a serious hunter for so many years and you know the older you get it's more about the guys that you do stuff with and less about you know if everybody gets something and if you don't it's not successful and now anymore i just i love to go to the farm and the first thing i do is i jump on my side by side and i run out and see if my chestnut trees are still alive and you know, if the, you know, if all of the, if all of the bare dirt underneath all the scrapes I've created is all still bare dirt and, and, and then, and then looking forward to, you know, having, you know, having months and months and months to think about, okay, what am I going to do? What am I going to, am I going to hinge? Am I going to put in more scrapes? Am I going to, you know, what am I going to do next? And then to get there and then just go like a crazy man for a couple of weeks, run yourself ragged, lose weight in the heat. And I, I look forward to that as much as going back and, you know, hunting the deer that I have all the trail cam pictures of. For sure. Yeah, and we're we're all ate up with this, so you know Yeah. A, yeah. a little bit a little bit different scenario. I hired I, Eric Long to come walk my property and, mm-hmm. and same thing. We just we just want to try to get as much information as we can. So I'm constantly reading Jeff Sturgis's books. I'm reading uh, Steve Bartilla, everything I can yep. get my hands on so we could, like, sort of fine-tune, even though, like you said, Eric is super knowledgeable, and my property has benefited tenfold from his knowledge. But we're just constantly trying to get better and learn and fine-tune it, and I think, right. I think that's all where we're at. Right, exactly. I mean, we're all just, we're all just doing what we hope is making it better. And, uh, you know... One of the, you know, one of the things that was kind of a, kind of a painful lesson early was, you know, it doesn't matter whether you've got 40 acres, 100 acres, or probably even four or 500 acres, you can't grow a whitetail to five years old and keep it out of view somebody else. It just, it just has to be done. It's just not, it's just not realistic. So, you know, everything you can do to your property to keep him on your property longer um, just up your odds, and uh, so you know every you know every year is kind of a it's kind of a chess match to to add more to uh, you know there's there's a lot of things I think you can do to a property um, that I've learned from you know books and magazine articles and talking to people and people that have come to the property and you know combining all this knowledge and saying okay I want to keep you know I want to keep Mr Big as 
as uh, Steve would say, Steve Bartolo would say, right. I want to keep right. them on my property as long as possible. And um, those are the things I'm I'm focusing on. And, and to be honest, food plots isn't uh, isn't really it. It's you know it's it's cover, it's natural browse, and you know I like just a couple quick examples. I run around the property when I first got it after it was logged, and there's a lot of uh, grapevine on my property. And of course, it you know it grows up, it hits a tree, it spirals up, and you know there's there's all of this. This, uh, these great leaves, and it's a, it's a, it's a deer love it. The problem is, is it's out of their reach almost instantaneously. So I got with right. a friend, and we ran around with a couple of those fancy Zubot saws that Dr. Jim's always talking about, and everywhere we could find um, grapevine, cut it. You know, a couple feet out of the ground, cut it. Just left it hanging in the tree, but cut it. Well, that instantly sprouts back, and every one of those Every one of those stump sprouts, if you want to call it that, just created a little uh, a little buffet, a little a little place oh, yeah. to, yeah, for deer to nibble. And then uh, I had this one one field um, behind my neighbor's house that was all grown overgrown. It was full of briars and and vine honeysuckle and all different kinds of forbs and some grasses and stuff. And it was it's just like it's one big pile of deer food, but there's no deer couldn't access it other than around this big pile, right? So so what I did was, as I took a bush hog and I dropped it to the ground and I went right straight through the center of that giant mound of food that deer couldn't get to and cut it right down to the dirt, five feet wide or whatever the bush hog was, went right through the center of it. Then on either side of that, I put the bush hog as high as it would go and still rotate the blade and then I went, made a five-foot strip on either side of that down to the dirt. And then on either side of that, I took it down to the ground again. And then on either side of that, I took it up three and a half, four feet. And what happened when I was done is I had all these steps. And every one of those trails, so, so I, went from, I went from this giant pile of deer food that deer could only access the very perimeter and only up as high as they could reach, to having hundreds and hundreds of square feet of deer food, because every one of those every one of those paths I cut down to the ground created deer food on both sides that they could reach. That's a great point, and that's that's a, that's a simple, easy way to make food that's Mother Nature is growing out there. Didn't didn't cost me a dime other than you know a couple hours in my uh, my old 1950s tractor and bush hog. Sure. So you have these guys out here, Phil. Was there anything else you did to further your uh, knowledge and understanding? Any type of boot camps or deer steward courses? So I so I did recently uh, finish the deer steward level one, um, and I, I have taken a couple of the, the the popular boot camps that have been offered by uh, by by some of the folks that uh, you know advertise that they have a good one. Um, I've learned something. There's something to learn everywhere. <laughs> and, to, and to think that if you, you know, take the deer steward level one or if you take this guy's boot camp or if you hire, you know, this guy to come out to your property and put together a plan, if you think that any one of those is going to get you to to the end of your, you know, you're, you're no longer going to be curious. You're going to be settled with, okay, now I know what I need to know about whitetails. 
then, yeah, it's not going to happen. <laughs> You're going to be like, right. that was good, and I learned a lot. What's next? And then, and and you know, for me, it's just been a it's just been a constant, you know, constantly going and going and going and learning more and talking to guys. And social media is just so there's just so much out there now that. Um, you know, it's, it's kind of cool to be able to go back to some of these books, you know, Jeff Sturgis or Dr. Jim's or Don Higgins and, you know, thumb through those pages and reread stuff that, you know, I read six, eight, you know, ten years ago and, uh, you know, kind of soak it back in the melon again. Sure. Now, Phil, yeah. I wanted to move to, now that you've had these guys out, you bought mm-hmm. the property, you found the perfect spot. Mm-hmm. What did you start getting into in terms of do's and don'ts, pros and cons? So one of the subjects that we wanted to, to cover, one of the themes, if you will, were habitat and hunting related do's and don'ts, things that okay. you've learned on your property. Uh, okay. Success stories and, and and the hardships. Go ahead and dive sure. into so, some of those for us. So first, I want to start by saying when I hunt my property, I'm always, and this changes for everybody, but for me, my challenge is to go out and hunt the most mature buck on my property, hopefully, you know, four or five-year-old if there's one around that year. And so that's that's where my that's where my interest is, it lies, is trying, you know, trying to kill a mature woods-wise buck. And so... Everything I've done to the property, I've done with the intent, since since I'm not able to be at the property, I'm not able to watch it, you know, on a daily basis, I have to set it up so it's like, okay, I'm going to come for two, maybe three weeks in the end of October and first part of November. How can I, how can I set that property up that's going to help me in that one time period? Well, we all know if you hunt a property... It doesn't even have to be a, a small property, but even, you know, even a property my size, 80 acres, if you hunt it every day, every morning and every evening, after four or five days, you just quit seeing deer. I mean, that's just, that that's just quick, the way it yeah, works. I mean, quick. it literally works that quick. So for me, not wanting to get to my property, have a couple of days of seeing a lot of deer and then a whole bunch of days of seeing nothing and not really having a whole lot of other places to necessarily go, I said, okay, i got to implement things on this property that makes it so when I'm hunting it, the deer don't know they're being hunted. And some of the things that are kind of my big do's and don'ts are 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 really um, are really pretty simple. Um, I don't um, I don't set up locations to hunt. I try not to set st- uh, places to hunt over food. Okay, I want the deer not not quite like a sanctuary, but I want the deer to come and go. I want the does and to drag the bucks out into the into those uh, locations during daylight. I don't want them thinking that somebody's going to shoot them if they step into that clover patch, um, you know, before dark, which then means you're obviously not going to see a buck before dark. If the doe stays in the thick, the bucks can stay in the thick with her. So, so I try and hunt the travel corridors, the the travel locations going to the food or this big circle track of food that I have. I try and catch them between food plots or between bedding areas or uh, or whatever. Um, then uh, let's see. I got I got uh, I lost my train of thought there. Um, so so and the other thing is not bumping deer on the way in and out of the stands. I think. 
that's probably that's probably been that's been huge and that's been hard because there's been times when I've gone to my property after months and months and months of anticipation and not hunted the first couple of days I was there because I didn't feel like there was a place on my property I could hunt that the wind was going to be good and that I could get in and out of that stand without bumping deer on the way in or the way out. And so rather than not take that chance, uh, or rather than take that chance, I just said, well, we'll see what, we'll see what tomorrow morning brings or tomorrow night brings. Yeah. And I, I think by thinking about it differently and timing, you know, waiting on weather, um, those kinds of things, um, not feeling like I had to hunt every minute I was there has has helped tremendously. And I mean, you just can't you just can't say it enough that uh, if you're bumping deer walking in and then bumping deer walking out, a couple of days of that, it really doesn't even matter if you're going to the same stand. If they're just seeing you repeatedly on 40, 80 acres, 60 acres, 16 acres, it doesn't matter. They're going to be on your neighbors, and it's going to take them, you know, a few days or a week or whatever to, to funnel back in. And, you know, if you're like me, you're going to be gone by the time they come back. It doesn't do you any good. No, I game I over. Yeah, yeah, game over. It's it's that fast, and your uh, your access or waiting for the right wind to access. I mean, that's all. That's so important. I mean, it took me a long time to to really follow that religiously, and I think a lot of uh, our listeners have, have probably heard us talking a lot about it because it's it's a big deal. Right. Um, right. When so, I'm when I'm working on the property. I am farmer Phil, and when I'm hunting the property, I'm hunter Phil, and I try and keep I try and keep all of my habitat work to midday. I try and keep it to when all of the deer are bedded down; they're in their little, you know, shaded little thickets and so on and so forth. And I try not to go in those. I try and my my uh, my side by side trail basically drives this big circle track of food. I try and stay in it. I try not to get too far away from it. When I first bought the property, it was like a park woods. I'd start in on one end with a four-wheeler, and I could see deer running out the other end, you know, hundreds of yards away. And now, you know, now I can be driving most anywhere and see deer 10, 15, 20, 30 yards into the thicket standing there watching me and watching me walk right on by and then go back to doing what they're doing. Well, you know, six, eight, five, six years ago, they wouldn't have done that, but you know, that back in that time, they would have seen me coming and heard me coming, and all I'd have seen was the white flag as they were going onto the neighbor's property a quarter mile away. Um, right. So I try and do I try and do my 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 maintenance, my habitat stuff midday. A lot of times, I'll you know uh, carry some salt around with me, a little bit of maybe maybe some handfuls of corn. You know, we all know that you cut a tree down, the deer show up five minutes after you're gone, want to know what's going on. They want to, you know, they're smelling the, the fresh dirt, the leaves, they're eating the tops of branches. Well, I'll, I'll sprinkle some corn out or I'll, you know, throw a treat out for them and, you know, kind of make it, in my mind, maybe it's just letting me think that, hey, the deer, when the deer hear me out there running a chainsaw, chopping, doing this, doing that, they want to come see what's going on, not run off onto, uh, not run off onto the neighbors. Um you know, yeah, those are some good um, hunting-related do's and don'ts. Do you have anything more related towards habitat? Uh, I know those are so, things that you, you, the things we just covered would be things that you would imply during the deer season itself. Right. What else right. are you talking about 
uh, in terms of do's and don'ts, mistakes, and successes when it comes to the habitat-related side of things? Lots of scrapes. You can't have Lots too many scrapes. scrapes huh? okay. Lots of scrapes. So a number of years ago, about the time I did the hunt with uh, Don, about the time I met Don Higgins, I read an article by the Winslow brothers, and the Winslow brothers, even years previous to this, were the first ones that I know of that talked about using ropes for scrapes, for the licking. Sure. I've got them everywhere on my property. I've I've got dozens and dozens of them, and i got deer using them everywhere. And And what kind of rope is that specifically, Phil? Because isn't there a certain kind of rope that it has to be or no? You know, the Wenzel brothers talked about using natural hemp rope that yeah. didn't have any uh, oils or anything, but it's getting That's harder and harder to find. It's getting harder and harder to find that rope natural that hasn't been soaked with kerosene or something for longevity. I know Don's talked about using um, cotton rope or that, like the rope you'd use for tying a boat up because it it it, it, it um, fuzzes and and holds a lot of scent. Yeah, I think I think the type of material is far less important than the location, and if there are a lot of other. So what I've done is is I put in scrapes. I go around and I get rid of all of the marginal licking branches. So I just limb everything up around it. But but I put in but I put in lots of them. Um, a couple of years ago, a friend of mine, when I was still in Alaska, I had a buddy. I flew down to the farm. I hunted. I killed a buck. He flew down. We, we've got photos of the buck he ended up killing like 45 minutes later on the other end of the property. He's working this scrape line that I put in. And because I didn't have a camera on every one, I wasn't able to track him. But I feel pretty confident that he stopped and hit how many ever scrapes it takes to take up 45 minutes and walk 300 yards. But he hit every one of them on the wow. way to one that was in front of the stand that was in a location where you could get in and get out without bumping deer. He was making his morning morning rounds, and he just went from scrape to scrape to scrape to scrape. I mean, some of these weren't more than five yards apart, and he's hitting two or three in a row that are five yards apart, and then he'd go, you know, 30, 40 yards and hit the next one, and he just he just made this circuit that I created, and uh, boom, he walked by my body, and buddy shot him and thought, Wow, that was easy. And uh, that's awesome. <laughs> so I think a I think a mature buck is like a dog. Um, they want to they want to stop and pee on everything. And I think I think if you put a licking branch in the perfect area, you uh, rough up the ground, spray some ground clear, um, so that you know so that it, it it makes a visual. You know, you got that visual dirt spot there. Even even if it's if it's too early for them to be using it, they'll naturally go to it. Um, the real key scrapes on your property, and I've got several man-made ones on my property that I can show you pictures where the deer use them year-round. I got right. you know does does that are checking them, you know bucks that are checking them. They're just they're like a they're like a, a community like a social hub. Yeah. Yep. That's and a great so point. I I think you know when I'm when I'm when I'm done with my property in that you know seventy whatever acres, I'm hoping to have I don't know. Two, three hundred. That sounds that sounds crazy, but I keep putting them in, and the deer keep using them. Oh, two to three hundred <laughs> scrapes. You're saying That's two to three hundred scrapes. scrapes. Okay. Yep. Wow. And when you're when you're using when you're using the rope, you got to be real careful because I've done where I've laid the rope in on a tree branch and let it dangle down, and then spray ground clear, and and you know it's all set up and ready to go. The problem is that in the summertime, if you do it. 
and the branch has leaves on it, it's weighted down. Well, then I come back to my farm and I'm checking trail cam pictures, and all my damn licking branches are six feet off the ground, six yeah. and a half feet off the ground. <laughs> well, the leaves, the leaves all fell off, and the branches, you know, uncompressed, and now all of a sudden I had. I had these uh, I had these licking branches that were deer are using them. I got pictures of deer standing there looking up at a at a uh, at a rope that's two foot over their head that they've been using for you know days and days and days. And now all of a sudden it's not in not in not in reach anymore. That's funny. That pic one of the pictures you sent today that I thought that rope looked a little high. I didn't really yeah, know that, that, that was that you was looking yep. up at it. Yeah, but then he gets on his hind legs and gets up there and. And rubs his antlers in it too, so that's pretty awesome. So something else that I've implemented to try and get away from that is, if I can find uh, a big heavy branch, uh, um, something that I would I would think I, I think that deer like to rub as much or more on trees that aren't perfectly vertical, and I think that's why the whole. Um, the whole horizontal rub thing's gotten really popular and why okay. deer take it to it because I think naturally they like that. I've got a friend up in Michigan, quick story, he's doing a food plot, he's coming around with a big tractor and a big set of discs, he goes around, he takes it a little too wide, he catches what you guys call popple trees. I guess that's just a poplar. Yeah, it's a but poplar. Anyway, he, a lot of guys call them popples, but yeah. I think grabs, I'll figure that he, out too. He snags, he snags this... Uh, this tree that's, you know, big around as his thigh or whatever, grabs it with the edge of the diff before he can get the tractor shut down and back off of it. He's pulled it over almost all the way over to the ground. Well, it's still suspended on the ground at a little bit of an angle, not quite horizontal. That fall, in four or five places, deer bucks had rubbed from one end of it to the other. There were like six scrapes under it with the, the branches that were at the natural height. He said it was the one place on his property where he has pictures of every buck that he saw throughout the whole season in one place. Wow. So, uh, so then what I did is I got to thinking, okay, um, I've had other guys say that, you know, they pulled saplings over so the licking branch is at the right angle. Well, then the, then the buck scrapes on the sapling because it's not, it's not vertical. It's now at a little bit of an angle, and they like, they like to rub on it that angle. So what I've done and some of the, some of the newer scrapes that I'm making, I'm actually taking like a pole. Um, some of them I did, I had access to some, uh, some pine limbs. I stuck some pine limbs in there, draped the rope off the top of it, ground cleared under it, moved on. And I don't have any deer that are using it as a, as a rub yet, but I also, every one of them is being used as a, as a primary, as a primary scrape location and licking branch. So I'm hoping with time, and maybe I'm going to try, like, some cedar poles that still have bark on them or whatever. I'm trying to implement a potential, you know, rub post, licking branch, scrape, kind of all into one thing. That's kind of something new that I'm playing with sure. right now. No, that's pretty awesome. And, Phil, what do you call these? Like, what's your name for this system? <laughs> I don't really have a name for any of it. It's pretty it's cool, and your pictures are great. I love it. Yeah, it's 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 been fun experimenting, but you know I've had guys look at look at that stuff and they they think you're crazy or you got too much time on your hands or you know deer you know deer are gonna make scrapes all up and down a you know a, a, a field why you know why mess with it but I don't know you know I, well, I, it I looks love obvious. it obvious I mean it looks like it's sticking out like 
like that one tree that your buddy bent over. I mean, that tree stuck out from the rest of them, so every deer hit it. I mean, it just it became like it. a it became a magnet. I mean, yeah, he I said like he said it was unbelievable. So something right. else that I think is, something else I think is worth noting is um, social stress on deer. You know, a lot of guys. They get a piece of property, they want to put a big five-acre food plot right in the middle of it and then hunt off of it. And that's great, except for that draws all your deer to one place, or if you can legally, you know, um, off and feed deer, they, oh, yeah, one feeder's good for 128, every 120 acres or whatever. The problem with putting food in one place is, is you draw food or draw deer to one place, and because there's a pecking order and a hierarchy, you know, we've all seen pictures of deer fighting in trail cam pictures. So so with my property, what I've done is I've put food everywhere. And so I don't plant beans on one end of the, of the farm and then clover uh, on the other end of the farm because there's times when obviously they're going to be in the beans and there's other times of the year when they're going to be in the clover. So by, you know, scattering the beans, the clover, the, you know, the brassicas and then enhancing the natural vegetation, and giving deer something to eat everywhere, you break them up and you scatter them around the property because it's thick, because there's food everywhere. They don't have to travel great distances. Everybody's happier. Bucks have to move around your property more to smell all those does because they're not predictable. They're not coming to one place. And 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 that is that's huge. I mean, that just makes it makes such such a difference. Now it's harder to walk. To a food plot in an evening and see deer because you don't have all the deer in one place, so you can't take an inventory. And there's been times when I've driven my four-wheeler around my property during prime time and seen very few or, or, or no deer at all, and knowing that I just drove past, you know, 30 or 40 of them. But sure. it's also a good thing because they're not seeing me. You know, it's a good right. thing because that buck is having to search him out. He's covering more ground. He's spending more time on my property and not just walking through my park woods, smelling the one field that I've got or the one food plot i got. And he literally walks across my property in 10 or 15 minutes, and then he's on the neighbors. Um, you know, I've got a buck that's got to walk around my property for, you know, for an hour or more to check all those scrapes, find all those does, look at all those bedding, you know, sniff all those bedding areas, whatever. So the more diverse and the more scattered you have the food, the bedding, the whatever, the more the happier the deer are. And I've, I've, seen, I've seen that in, like, more ways than I can tell you. No, I mean, that makes sense. Are you out there to see 20 deer or are you out there to see the one deer? You know, it's really what your, right. what your goals are. And I think breaking that up or... You know, compartmentalizing right. your food plots is, uh, I need to do more of that. I can tell you that right now. So, I'm, that's one of my goals. If I could, if I'd ever totally figure it out, I'd never shoot a doe from the tree stands that I think one day I'll kill a doe. Ever. Because, ever. Okay. Because we all know that the best fit in a tree stand is the first time you put it in, right? Sure. Well, if it's the first time you sit in it and a buck comes by and you shoot him, that, then that's great. But the problem is that if I shoot, if, I, if, if last year I shot, I shot a, um, I shot a doe out of a doe group and I've got a big old horse head, you know, dominant doe that ran out of there all freaked out because 
she heard the noise and saw the flopping around and saw all the chaos, it's my belief that they'll never look at that spot the same again. And I and I feel confident in saying that when a when a doe group takes her takes her her does her her you know her harem around that uh, her, her little family group around that spot. If she's even a little bit nervous about it for whatever reason, other deer around them pick up on that stuff. And so, in my mind, if I make that spot a kind of a, like a, a no-go or a questionable a questionable spot, even if it's just for the year, then I feel like my the likelihood that a buck is going to come by that spot is decre- decreased. And so, if I've got a spot, if I want to shoot does, I want to go out. You know, it's like it's the end of the season. I'm getting ready to go home. I want to take, you know, a couple does off the off the property just to keep numbers down. Put some um, meat in the freezer or whatever. And I'm going to go, you know, sit on the sit on the property line, sit against the fence, hide in a different tree or whatever, and and do the harvest and move on. But those places that I, you know, I've cleaned out and I've got them on the sneak trail. I've got them between two bedding or two food. I think, man, one of these days I'm going to catch a five and a half year old giant walking through here. I'm 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 saving it for him. I don't want to I don't want to do anything to mess it up. I like Good that. Point. I like that. So you wouldn't shoot a doe even if it's very early in the season, thinking that it may calm down by the rut. You're, you're totally waiting. You're like I'll wait till I've, late season, you know, and then I'll move to I've, a special spot to shoot that doe. I'd be lying if I I don't have enough places on my property yet to do that. But I, I do hope to, at some point, have places where I can, you know, take care of harvest, keep numbers down, you know, kind of keep mm-hmm. the, you know, keep the, keep the process moving. But I, I think I'm always going to have these little secret places where I think, you know, I can catch a big buck on the night when it's supposed to get really, really cold yeah. or, you know, on one of those scrape lines that years and years and years, I just get pictures of every buck coming through there and using the heck out of it. And it's just, I've got this long history of bucks coming through here on in daylight. And there's a stand there. And when he, you know, when, when the timing's right, I'm going to be there and I'm going to kill him. And he's not even going to have any idea what just happened because there's no, you know, there's been no, there's been no history. Sure. That take, you know, that takes time. I love it. No, Phil, I think we covered a lot of great information on, <laughs> on uh, We don't we don't heavy. have we don't have another hour? I mean, hey. I got all night, buddy. <laughs> it's uh No, it's all good. Sleep is, is overrated, so you know yeah, that's there, right. there's no rest you, for the wicked, but you're no. you're young yet. You can sleep when you get old. That's what uh, that's what everybody says. Yeah, said, or right? yeah, you can sleep and when you're can, dead. Yeah, you know, you don't have to worry about it now. And we like return guests. We'll we like return guests. We'll have you back for sure. Yeah. Yeah, I can I can come up with some some other crazy ideas. That well, I wasn't you, uh, even done yet, guys. Like... You guys just assumed I was done. I'm not quite. Oh. Done. <laughs> oh. I see. I see you bent over there, and you got you got. You got one one hand on one corner of the rug and the other hand on the other corner, <laughs> waiting for you to give it a jerk. So. Yeah, no, sir, no. I uh, I was just summarizing that uh, you know we, we covered a lot of great do's and don'ts on hunting and habitat related items. Once you own the property, um, mm-hmm. you told us a lot about steps toward making a plan with the different guys you had out and, and the way you went about mm-hmm. it, um, and then how to choose the property right off the bat. I mean. A, and over an hour and 15 minutes of great information here. 
I want to get back to something a little bit fun. I want to hear your favorite big buck hunting story, and if we can, a favorite Alaska hunting story. I don't know. I love stories. I love hearing people tell them, and uh, if you have time and want to go into one, two, or both, I'd love to hear them. <laughs> I got I got a good one for you. It's quick and it's quick and dirty. I went with a friend uh, to hunt a spot one time on his lease, and um, you know he had a bunch of intel, bucks moving through, scrape lines. You know he had this master plan. He's like, I'm going to go sit here. You sit out here, and you just you just hang tight. You you know, and and basically what I was doing was I was sitting in his downwind for all intents and purposes. So. If a buck came from one direction, I could kill him before he smelled my buddy. But if he came from the other direction, he was going to—he would probably smell my buddy. And, and my buddy may have been far enough away that he—that um, he may not have—that uh, he may not have spooked. He might have just snuck around my buddy and, and, and inadvertently been shot by me. But what ended up happening is we both got in the stands, and I thought, well, this is a heck of a place to be. I'm not going to sneak, okay? My buddy sends me a text and he says, uh-oh, i got to use the restroom. So he runs back out, goes past me, back where we'd, we'd come in from the river, and he's overusing the restroom, and here comes a big buck, walks right by me. I draw back. I shoot him. Biggest buck I've ever killed. I shoot him. He had no idea I was even in the country, and my buddy has his pants around the ankle, his ankles like 40 yards away and watches the whole thing. <laughs> no way. And that is that is one hundred percent one hundred percent fact. I mean, it, it literally happened just like that. Now, what would have happened if he'd have been in that stand? I don't know. The deer may have just turned and run off, and I'd have never seen him. Or you know, he may have been in sneak mode and still came by me. The fact of the matter was, my buddy watched it happen, and uh, yeah, it's it's hilarious. Watch that happen. And how how big a deer was that? Uh, it's a one fifty ten. Oh, geez, very nice. That's awesome. So, does <laughs> does your buddy still let you hunt with him, or does he push you upwind now? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's funny because Indiana's a one buck state. A lot of times, by the by the time I get there, you know, there's a, there's a good chance the the that that some of my buddies are going to be done by the time I get there. You know, I have to, I have to, you know, focus my, I like to be there the last few days of October and the first couple of weeks of November. That's when I, you know, I, I would love to kill a buck in October when he's still on a feeding pattern every year. But until, you know, until I'm at the property full time, I, I have to pretty much take what I think is going to give me my best odds. And that's yeah, of course. later. I, I, I'm in the same boat. I mean, with three young kids and, and work, mm-hmm. I, I usually hold off pretty hard until uh, that that early November time. This year, I think I'm going to miss it. I waited till about the first to really dive in on my small property, and I think I missed it right. for a couple of days. But no, I mean, right. plus there's, there's nothing like a crisp November morning versus a hot October afternoon. I mean, <laughs> no offense to October, but I'm a, a November buggy. fan. A buggy, hot, sweaty, miserable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, When when I'm there full time, I can I can do a little more with, you know, with some food that's applicable that October time frame. You know, plant my beans later so that I've got the only standing green beans. I mean, yeah, there's there's a lot of different things that you can do, but 
But for me, not being there all the time and having to rely on neighbors and help, you you know, you pretty much take what you can get. You're thankful for, for what you do get and, and uh, make the best of it. Well, hey, I, sure. I know you're a humble guy, but the text you were uh, sending me earlier and that I've seen on your Facebook, you guys are doing some good stuff down there. So keep up I the good work. we're on the right track. Yeah. Yeah, I think I'd we're on the right so. track. And I, I think I'm on the wrong track by uh, spending too much time in Michigan. <laughs> I've got a buddy that lives I enjoy in it, Michigan. But it's I've, been up there, I've been up there a few times with him, and to hear him say, you know, a little basket, uh, what I would call a – you know, what I would call a little, you know, used to call a little three-point, which would be, you know, a, a three on both sides with eye guards or a little basket eight. Yep. You know, that's as, that's as big as they get in this neck of the woods, and that just blows my mind. Where's he at? So he's in, um, he is in uh, West Branch. Oh, yeah. Yep. That's nor- that's, uh, you know. that's right where I consider it. it to start being up north. Yep. That's right up right. 75. No, I yeah, mean, he's still what an hour below the below the bridge or whatever, but yeah, yeah he's yeah. in central central northern there. No, the uh, the nostalgia and the history we have here in Michigan. I mean, there's there's nothing like it. I I I kid. I'll always hunt here. I'll always uh, enjoy chasing these hundred inch eight points. It's fun. It's tough. It's challenging. He's, and then when you go a, to another place, you uh, yep. You know, you're uh, you're a better hunter when you do that. So. I enjoy he's it. a few he's a few years older than me he's, he's literally hunted every season since he's a kid um, killed countless whitetails and the biggest whitetail he's ever killed was in Indiana a few years ago <laughs> yeah. and it, you know and it, it it wouldn't be what some people would consider a monster I guess it would be a monster for you know, I was like a 140 you know 146 10 or something like that biggest buck he'd ever killed. Yep, there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, experiencing <laughs> no, the rut. At all. Yeah, experiencing the rut out of a state like Michigan is, uh, yep. you know, go go to Ohio or Illinois or Indiana and exactly experience the rut one time, and it, it's just different. I mean, it's it's it is it's yep. it's higher pressure up here, but when you do connect with a Pope and Young buck in Michigan, I mean, it's a it's rewarding. It sure is. Yeah, it's got a it's got to feel like you almost like you won the lottery. Yes, sir. Actually, the the odds might be worse than the lottery. I'm not sure, but uh, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> what was what was your what was your other question you had too there? And I, I missed. Oh yeah, that. no, I just wanted to hear uh, an Alaska story. If you have an Alaska story, I'd love to you know, hear a, a I've crazy got, Alaska story. I've got. You know, I don't know. I don't know if any of you know. Um, I don't know if any of you know a guy named Tim Gillingham. He's a He's a pro shooter. He's the head salesman for Gold Tip Arrows. Um, he and I went back to uh, shooting archery back in the early '90s in Alaska. Okay. And, um, anyway, he's you know he's like I don't know what's Tim six three six four. He's kind of a big he's a big big tall big strong guy. You know now he's a you know one of the best archers in the world. He travels all over the world shooting. And I've you know he's kind of one of those uh, you know I've had some hunts with him where. Uh, you know, you just you just laugh. It's just like you know, if it wasn't for bad luck, you wouldn't have any luck at all. And anybody who anybody who knows Tim really well knows that you know that he's uh, you know that he's had some bad luck in you know on the, the the ASA some of the ASA tournaments and and you know shooting some of the indoor like Vegas. He is a great guy. Would help anybody, but yeah, I, I did some hunts back with Tim back in the early years. Lost equipment, went snowing, you know, or, or went swimming in, 
in, in, in creeks in October and almost froze to death. I mean, I got stories. Pretty much anything I did in Alaska that was borderline chance of me dying all happened in a few-year period with Tim Gilling. <laughs> <laughs> and stories I could, I could have everybody howling, but they take too long to tell to get the, the gist of it. But he's a super, super great guy, and I really I, I miss the – I miss hanging out with him in the early 90s, but, boy, we did some crazy stuff. Oh, that's awesome. Well, maybe someday we can uh, share a story around a campfire sometime. That would be fun to hear those stories. So, Absolutely, yeah. You ever you ever decide to plan a trip up, up to Alaska, I, you know, I can't necessarily go with you, but I can probably get you, get you pointed in the right direction. Most of the hunting in Alaska doesn't require a guide, but it does require, you know, quite a bit of quite a bit of planning hey when that day happens which it will i will call you sounds good that sounds awesome <laughs> and phil yeah. is there anything yeah. else you wanted Thanks. to cover tonight before we wrap this up no no i mean i you know i've got i've got pages i mean i got more stuff i could i could i could tell you but i think that's uh that's a lot to digest for one one sitting i don't want anybody thinking i'm too crazy in one sitting so no that's perfect we'll get you on for a round two and uh i do uh want to thank you for coming on and, and spending your time on here tonight so thank you very much wow guys another good episode in the books thank you so much phil lincoln for coming on learned a ton there and i look forward to keeping in touch with you in the future thanks for spending your time tonight here on the habitat podcast Guys, for anybody who hasn't heard, we're doing a special giveaway for those who submit their email address on HabitatPodcast.com. We're trying to build our list of contacts, and we will give away something special only if you submitted your email address online. So please go to HabitatPodcast.com, sign up for the notifications and new podcast tab by submitting your email, and you will be notified of a drawing coming up here soon. I want to thank the listeners one more time. For coming on, you can find us at HabitatPodcast.com, iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you can find a podcast. To thank our partners at the Packer Max line of Cult of Packers, the Nation's Creations Habitat Hook, Killer Food Plots, Dip That Hydrographics, and Michigan Whitetail Pursuit. Thank you guys for supporting the podcast. We'll be back again soon, guys. Becoming better habitat managers. Get out and enjoy your woods and be safe. Talk soon.